Remember the old ditty. This is getting old now, but remember the old ditty, the original one by McDonald's where they said, you, you're the one. That, some of you remember, some of you kids maybe don't even remember that. You ever, they, they said, you, you're the one. And it was brilliant. Um, and it was brilliant because they tapped into what people most value and treasure in life. And what is it? Yourself. We love ourselves. I mean, that is the most important thing. It's interesting when you listen to interviews today, uh, people that are famous or even not too famous, isn't it interesting what they will say? They'll, it, it's almost like they're all reading from the same script. They'll say, yes, I'm just doing the best I can. You know, I just need to trust in myself more, trust in the things that I have to give people. I need, you know, I'm, I'm having trouble, but I know if I exercise my self-love, I will be doing better. I know that, you know, I just need to, to, need to tap into myself and my resources and love myself more and I'll do better. It's all about me and, the, and, and how good I am and what I have to offer. And everything always gets back to us. Have you noticed that? After a while, it's kind of like interviews aren't so interesting anymore because you know what they're going to say about how hard they tried in themselves. And as noble as that sounds to our culture, we need to understand that that is the exact opposite of what the Bible teaches. It couldn't be more far off. That is the problem that Paul raises in Romans. We're reading the book of Romans, and Paul has written it. And what he says at the beginning, he talks about the gospel or the good news of Jesus. He just sort of mentions it. And then he says, but there's a problem with this gospel. And the problem is, is that people don't understand it and they don't want it. People want to get to heaven on their own. People want to do things on their own. People want to love themselves. And that is the epitome of sin. That's the problem. And so he paints a big picture of that over most of the first three chapters. And then he shifts gears. And we're starting a new series today called The Provision, The Provision of the Gospel. And over the next couple of chapters, he's going to talk about God has provided a way out. It's not about us. We're not going to get there that way. But God has provided a way out. And it's a provision that didn't start just with Jesus coming to earth. It's a provision that goes all the way back to the beginning. And the whole Bible, Old and New Testament, ties into this provision. And we're going to be talking about that over the next couple of weeks. Today, he's going to kick it off by talking about this provision. Um, and as we do, I want to encourage you to read Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 12 for next week. And this week, we'll look at Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 31, as we'll look at how God provides justification for all. God provides justification for all. So Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 31. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? 
it is excluded. By what kind of law? By law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So God provides justification for all. We're going to explain what that means. But when we say God provides justification for all, there's two ways that he does this. And the first is he does it by grace as a gift in verses 21 through 26. It, it sounds a little bit like mumbo-jumbo, you know, when we read all this stuff, especially when we just kind of go to it. If you read the whole, you know, book up till now, you get more of an idea of the background. And Paul, when he says, but now, he's kind of talking about what he has been talking about. So what we need to understand is Paul is saying there's no way we can get there on our own, which we've already said, and he is now transitioning again, and he's saying, but you get there in a certain way. Now, he says, when he talks about getting there, he describes that with a courtroom term. The word righteousness and the word justification pretty much are synonymous. Think courtroom. Think Perry Mason. Think Matlock. Think L.A. Law. Think, you know, think of some of these old law courtroom scenes. And God is not only the judge, but he's the one who's been offended. And he's sitting there, and he needs to make a decision. And we're the ones who've offended him. We're the ones who've spit in his eyes. We're the ones who said, we don't need you. We can do it on our own. And we deserve condemnation. But God offers us righteousness or justification. In other words, we would say that God acquits us. He pronounces us innocent. And he, we are innocent apart from the law that he's given. In the Old Testament, he gave a law called the Mosaic Law that the Jewish people were trying to fulfill. And he says, you're innocent even though you haven't fulfilled that law. Even though you didn't live up to it, you are innocent. And he goes back and he says, you're innocent apart from the law, even as the law and the prophets have already said. What's the law and the prophets? It's today's Old Testament. When you read the Bible, the first part of the Bible, the Old Testament, we say, well, the Old Testament, was, that was ancient world, and then the New Testament is what we, we need to concentrate on because that's all about Jesus and the gospel, the good news. But what Paul is saying right here is that from history past, the Old Testament bore witness that God was a God of grace and that he wanted to give us righteousness, justification by his grace. Do you know there were over 300 prophecies made about a man who would come who the Old Testament called the Messiah who would make it possible for people to be saved, to be justified before God. In Hebrew, it's Messiah. In Greek, the translation is Christ. They were talking about Jesus. And so the Old Testament, he shows right away links into the New Testament. It's important because, remember, he's writing the early Christians were mostly Jewish. And they would read this out loud. I mean, they didn't say, hey, let's make it look at your smartphone. Let's kind of read this thing and see what happens. I'll text this to you. Can't do that then. So one person would get up and read it to everybody. And a lot of the people present were probably Jews that were still searching and didn't know Christ yet. And so he wants them to understand the Old Testament is still valid and it all ties in. And he wants us to understand because we read the Bible. You know, we, we teach our kids Sunday school lessons about these guys, these stories of the past. Did they even tie in? Yes, they all tie in. They're all part of the big picture 
of the gospel. And then he gets down, you know, to what it's all about. He gets back to Jesus and he says, it's all possible because of what Jesus has done. For those who believe, past or present, or future, we would be the future. And then he goes back and he gives us a verse that kind of ties it all in. One of the most powerful verses, I think, in scripture. I find myself using this a lot. He says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is what we were talking about at the very beginning. He says, every single person who has ever lived is a sinner. And again, we don't like being all sinners. You know, what do you mean? Don't call me a sinner. But again, remember, harmartia is the Greek word. And it means like a marksman. He's shooting and he misses the mark. And most of the time, you miss the mark. Sometimes you miss the mark on accident. Sometimes you miss the mark on purpose. Sometimes you hurt somebody's feelings by what you said accidentally. Sometimes you know you hurt their feelings. If you sin once, you fall short of God's holiness. And we, we fall short of his glory, of his, of his presence, of his power. The glory of God is a powerful thing. There's just something unbelievable that all of us have experienced. C.S. Lewis said when he was a little boy, he had these moments where he glimpsed uh, what he called joy. Just felt happy. He couldn't put his finger on it, but there were sometimes he just felt really good. And, and he couldn't hold on to it. What was that? Have you ever had that feeling? Something there. He said he was searching for joy. And he came to know Jesus. In the process. That's why his autobiography is called Surprised by Joy. God has that for us. There's that something out there. It's the greatness. It's the glory of God that we just get glimpses of. That God is calling us, drawing us into a relationship with himself. But we, you know, we fall short of that. You know, we get glimpses of it, right? We have feelings. I remember when I was a little boy once. I think I was about junior high. And I was really starting to appreciate God's presence. I was walking home from school, and I was looking around, seeing how beautiful God was. I probably had a silly look on my face. And just as I was in my reverie, some kid yelled across to me, hey, you dork, what are you doing, you know, and just ruined it. But isn't that kind of reality? That's reality. For a moment, we have it, and then we realize we're in a fallen world. But it doesn't have to be that way forever. God has something waiting for us that is so great. But it's so beyond us. Yesterday, I had the honor of doing a, um, a graveside service for Mary, um, uh, Mary Webb. Some of you maybe remember Mary. She used to come with Cindy Meyer's um, daughter, and, and Donna was there. And uh, she was only here for a short time. She had dementia. They'd moved up to Oregon, but she'd come back, and I'd done her husband's um, wet, uh, graveside, and I did hers. And we were talking about the same topic about... Um, you know, how good, good do you have to be to get to heaven? And it occurred to me, and I shared with them, when we think about being invited to go to the Oval Office, we chuckle. How many of you expect to get an invitation in your lifetime to go visit one of our presidents at the Oval Office? It's not going to happen. Pretty funny to even think about it. Let's put this in perspective. God is 10,000 times greater. How in the world do we feel and how audacious it is for any of us to think we're going to get to heaven? What a ridiculous thought. We don't expect to get the Oval Office, but we think we're going to go to heaven? That's outrageous. Just stop and think what you're thinking, what people are thinking when they say that. There's no way you're going to get in unless you get a personal invite. 
And God has made that possible. His invite comes in a spectacular way. What he says is that we are justified or we are made right before him. Remember we said made right or made innocent before him by his grace as a gift. He has given us a gift. How many of you are looking forward to giving back your Christmas presents this year? No, don't give that to me. I don't want it. Hopefully that's all what you'll do, right? God has given you a gift. Do you say, no, I don't want it? He's given it to us by grace, his unmerited favor. We do not deserve what he is giving us. You ever have people give you stuff that you don't deserve? And then you try to do something and they still, you just can't get it? When I, when, I was, um, when I went away to seminary, I didn't know who I was. I was going to a Presbyterian church, decided to go to a conservative Baptist seminary, but I, I didn't really know or care. Just, the, the seminary was a good school, and it was close to my grandparents, so I thought, well, I'll go up there and go there. The Presbyterian minister, he kind of thought, well, you know, what's he getting out of this? Nothing. But he, he, he took me out one day, and he said, Ron, I want to do you a favor. What? I want to pay for your books for you. I said, no, no way. I don't want anybody paying my books for me, right? No, I said, wow, that's really nice of you. Thank you. He goes, but you have to do something for me. Oh, what's this all about? A gift with an attachment. Every time you come home, you need to go out and eat with me and tell me what you've been learning. And he'd take me out to a nice restaurant. And I knew he had some money, you know, that they, God had been gracious to him. with his, He'd done well with the church and also his wife had a job, but... He just was generous, and, he, and I found out he did this with other guys. He just regularly did this kind of thing. It was his ministry. That's grace. There's no way I could ever repay him. And, and even when he said that he wants me to do something for him, what I'm doing for him is still really for me. That's grace. You ever have anybody do anything like that for you? God has. God has done something even greater. He's offered you an opportunity to live with him forever in this life and the life to come. That's, that's what the Bible is teaching you. And he goes on to explain how he does it through Jesus. He says, Jesus has, has come as our redemption. Redemption literally means to deliver. But in the Greek language here and within the culture, they understood that deliverance came through a monetary means, through a ransom, through a gift. It's saying here that Jesus came to pay the price for us. Jesus came to pay the price for us. And, and how did he do that? He came as our propitiation. There's a word they should have at the next spelling bee. We don't hear that word very often, propitiation, even hard to say. But what it literally means is that he came to die in our place. That's the price he paid, the price of his blood. He died on the cross for you to pay the price for you so that you could be declared righteous before God. There was no other way because we were imperfect, sinful people. And he did it by his blood, by his death, so that we could be received if we believe in him. And that's the only way if we believe in him. And now he gets back. Now, interesting, he's got that for us, but suddenly he bounces back and he says this. Very intriguing. He says, this was to show God's righteousness because of his divine forbearance. He had passed over former sins. He's talking now about the Old Testament again. Former sins. He's talking about the sins of the past. You ever wonder what happened to Moses? 
to David. We've been studying about David. Jacob we studied about last week, or, or Sarah, or Esther, or whoever your favorites are. How did they get to heaven? How did they get to heaven before Jesus? Because God, in his favor, God, in his grace, though they deserved it not, decided he would divinely forbear their sins. He would pass over their sins for now based on the fact that they had faith, that they believed he was who he was, and that he knew they would believe in Jesus. I mean, if a man believes he's 100 years old like Abraham and is going to have a kid and he has one, the man believes. And God knew that if Jesus came, he would believe. And these guys believed that someone, something was coming in the future. They didn't understand it. And God said, if you believe in what you don't understand, when he comes, it will be credited to you in advance for righteousness. And you will be declared good to go. That is grace. Despite their sins, all they did is they just said, God, we believe in your promise. And when the promise came true, they were there. How does that relate to us today? They look forward, we look back. And we see that the work on the cross has already been done. And now, by faith, there's nothing we can do, but we fall on our faces and we receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and as our Savior. And, and that's, that's the picture that he has before us. And that makes God, it is a just thing God does, and that makes him a justifier of what he does. I like the um, classic paraphrase of this in the message. Eugene Peterson writes this on this passage. He says, God does not respond to what we do. We respond to what God does. That, that kind of captures it. This is not about us. God doesn't respond to what we do. There's nothing we can do. Now it's up to us to respond to what he has done. And Paul shifts gears, and now he's going to talk about that. He's going to talk about what God has done, and he's going to see that we are justified apart, you know, by God's grace, but also apart from our works. Even still, it's all about God. Verses 27 through 31. He goes on and he says, what happens to our boasting? As Jewish people, he's still talking about the Jews. What do we have to boast in? That we have the Old Testament, that we've been circumcised, that we obey the Sabbath law, that we obey the food laws? No. He says, when we look at what we just talked about, nothing, nothing even comes close to that, right? There's nothing you can boast in. We all fall short. Which I was thinking the other day, Robbie Gould is maybe the best kicker in football at San Francisco 49ers, at least when he's healthy. Um, hasn't been healthy this year, and he's missed some. And they put in a substitute, you know, this last week, and they lost to the Seattle Seahawks. The substitute missed the, ball, the kick. And I was thinking, man, some of these kickers, they get so hard on them, but how hard it is to kick under that kind of pressure all the time. Can you imagine? Imagine the best kicker in football. How does he measure up with God? If God was a place kicker, how often would he miss? He wouldn't. He could kick it from anywhere and he wouldn't miss. Even the best of the best in whatever profession or whatever attribute they have is imperfect and falls way short from God. There's nothing you can do that would ever be good enough to earn his favor or to boast about. And so he says it's excluded. There is no law. 
The only law, and he talks kind of tongue-in-cheek, is the law of faith. How could you have a law of faith? You can't. He's playing with it. He's just saying, basically, it has to be by faith. It can't be anything else. If it is by faith, if it is only that you trust in God to get in, then who does this involve? Doesn't it involve everybody? It's no longer about meeting the law, the Jewish law. It's no longer about meeting your own self-imposed law. There is no law. If there's no law, then this is open to every person who has ever lived in human history. And that's what he's saying. It's open to everyone. God is not just the God of the Jews, but he's the God of the Gentiles or the non-Jews. He's the God of the circumcised and uncircumcised. He, he says, since God is one, in verse 30, the Jewish people were very proud of one God. And he's basically saying, because God is one, there's one way. As Jesus would say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So he says, let's, let's, not, you know, let's not overthrow this law of faith. Let's trust in faith alone. Now, have you ever, has it ever bothered you that you read the Old Testament and you say, well, apparently God, grace, his grace was always there and, and salvation always came primarily through faith in what God was teaching. How could they get so far away from it? How could that happen? Have you ever studied Christian history? It didn't take long before the church was making rules that people had to meet in order to get into heaven. That was true in the Middle Ages. Kurt and I had an opportunity, remember, to go into uh, Berlin uh, to visit our missionaries, the Millers, and they were very gracious. It was the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther, and we got to go see his home in Wittenberg. That was a real treat. I always thought he was a big guy, but he's kind of a, he is in his statues, he's real big. But uh, otherwise, he had this little, they had what he wore, and he's just a little kind of short, stocky guy. But he was a dynamic communicator, witty, funny guy. God used him as a Roman Catholic monk to get people back on track. And he popularized the term justification by faith. And he, he said a lot of clever things, but one of the things he said that became very popular and kind of summarizes what we're saying today is in, he, he, spoke in, he used this in a Latin term. He, used, he said sola gratia. Can you say sola gratia? Sola gratia means by grace alone. And then he said sola fide, faith. Sola fide, by faith alone. That summarizes what we're saying. You are saved by grace alone, nothing else. And you are saved by faith alone, nothing else on your part. On God's part, there's nothing but grace. On your part, there's nothing but faith. That summarizes it. Well, you come to God in that way. You come to God by grace through faith. And people say, but what about works? Yes, there are works. You're saved by grace through faith for works. If it's sincere, then the works will happen. But the works are at the very tail end. And everything else comes together. So that's the message that we have. And now, it'd be nice to believe that from that point on, the church got it all together and kept back in step. But you know, throughout history, the church has done this. And different times, people like Luther and others will come and bring us back to where we're supposed to be and then we'll fade away again. There are churches today, perhaps most churches and Christians are living under this law, this self-imposed law, beating themselves up and feeling guilty and trying to earn their way into heaven and all the way condemning themselves. And so the message of the gospel is far different than that. And we want to talk about that in terms of some applications today. And the first application is receiving the gift. God has offered you a gift. Have you received the gift? Have you come to realize that 
it's not about what you do, but it's what, about God, what God has already done for you. And that your response is simply to bow on your knee and say, I am yours. Take me. I give it all up to you. If you haven't done that, would you please come and talk with us today? We would love to, to help you understand that and love to see you come into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. If you've come into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, what does that mean for you? How does that work in your life? Stop and think about this. What was the greatest gift you ever received? You think of it, some of you think of it right away. I know for me, the greatest gift I received growing up uh, when I think about it, was a dog. I don't even cost my parents that much. They had a friend that had a bunch of, they had a bunch of pups. I got to go in and pick it out, so I kind of knew it was coming. I just didn't know when it was coming. This little dog, had, it was a German Shepherd. It had a little white tip on its tail. Um, so when I got the dog, my teacher, my first grade teacher, Mrs. Luby, what a great name for a first grade teacher. Behind her back, you know, all the time. Here we go, Luby, Lou. Here we go, Luby. But, uh, but... <laughs> Never to her face. No, she was tough. You don't mess with Miss Luby. But Mrs. Luby said, hey, you know, what do you guys have to share this weekend? I said, I have something to share. It's my birthday, and I got a dog. She said, what, what kind of dog? I said, a German Shepherd. She said, what would you name him? I said, Ludwig von Silver. She said, why? I said, he's German. <laughs> I was deadly serious. I thought you'd name him that. I thought he's German. You have to name him. I told my parents I want to name him German. My dad helped me with the name. The name didn't work well, though, because instead of calling him Ludwig, we started calling him Lude. You know, and that didn't go well. You know, Lude, come here. You know, but, so it wasn't a good nickname for the dog. But Ludwig was his name, and uh, he was a great dog. And you know what I did with that dog? That dog was given to me, and I didn't say, take him back, take him back. I said, no, I'll take this dog. And I love that dog. And I did everything with that dog <clears throat> that I could. But... The problem was is that he was a lot bigger than me, um, and I had trouble handling him, and so it kind of ebbed and flowed, but as time went on, we got closer and closer, and he was a big, strong dog. When I would mow the lawn, I'd give him, like, my rake to carry out for me, give him stuff, and he'd put him in his mouth, and he'd carry it out for me, and he'd work in the yard with me, and I'd take him in my little pinto and drive around when I was in high school, and he'd try to get in my lap. That didn't work well, um, but I loved that dog, and I still remember. <clears throat> I got something in my throat. <clears> throat> okay, I, got, I think I got out. Boy, it, <clears throat> Um, that didn't work so well when you're talking, but I still remember that dog and how much fun he was. But I also remember the day when I was 19 that I held that dog on my lap when he died. I'll never forget that day. Now, see, here's the, here's the thing with human gifts, right? They're given to us. We don't give them back. We love them. But even the gift that you love the most, it takes a while to really enjoy it. You, you have to engage with that gift if you're going to get the most out of it. And the most you put into that gift, the most you'll get out of it. Sometimes we discard our gifts, and then we come back to them. You never discard God. And if you have, you come back to him, and you hold on. But you know, all human gifts will break down or get lost or will lose interest in them, or they'll die. But the gift of Jesus Christ is there for eternity. By God's grace. Will you engage him? Will you hold on to him? Will you love him for the rest of eternity? It's the best gift that's ever been given you. And understand, too, this perspective that this gift has been given to us not because we're such great people. Understand this. God does not need us. At the men's retreat, the best talk I heard was actually a seminar. Um, P.J. Lewis, he actually repeated what Henry Blackaby has said in the past, but he said this, 
God does not have a plan for your life. Have you ever heard that? You used to hear God has a plan for your life. Let me correct that. God does not have a plan for your life. God has a plan for humanity, and he wants you to join him. It's about God's plan, and you have the privilege to be part of it. You can join him in conquering the planet. Do you want to join him? That's the gift, that, but it comes with God. It comes in knowing God and joining with him and serving him. Now, the last thing he talks about is faith versus works. And I'll tell you, I've struggled with how to present this. And, and I go off script every once in a while, but I, I kind of going off my original script here. As I was thinking about this this morning, um, I was thinking about a song by Chris Rice, who's one of my favorite uh, favorite singers and, and songwriters, and it just kept going in my head. So I thought, Lord, why does that keep going in my head? And it was about by faith. You know, what does it mean to live by faith? And I thought, well, if we've received God, well, how do we live by faith as opposed to works? And he talks a little bit of the, the Sermon on the Mount, but he, he says that faith is believing in what we don't see. We live by believing in what we don't see. Isn't that what it is? We, we don't see these things. We get glimpses of it, but we don't yet see it. It's believing that this thing is for real, that God is in a, rela- we're in a relationship with God and that we'll be with him and we'll see him in person in heaven one day. And then he says something very intriguing. He says, it's, it's giving even when we never receive. God doesn't give to us so that he can get from us. He just gives out of love. And a good way to check yourself is, are you giving for what you can receive? Because if you are, then it's no longer a faith-filled life. It's not based on faith. It's based on what I'm doing and what I'm going to get for it. You know, it's, it's not wrong to want a scholarship, but if that's the sole reason you're working towards that grade, you know, we get, I'm going to get, get a scholarship in school so I can go on to a good school. How about... I'm going to do the best I can with what God's given me. If I get the scholarship, I get it. If I don't, I don't. It isn't totally up to me. God's already determined what's going to happen. He's in control. I do the best I can. I let the chips fall where they may. I don't have to be uptight about this. God's got it. I live by faith. You know why? Because I have a gift that's greater than any scholarship, and I already have it. What does it matter if I get a scholarship? I'm going to heaven. I know the living God. I want to work so I get a promotion. I'm going to work harder than anybody else. Why? You've already got something better than a promotion. Who else is a prince or princess of heaven? What could be better? And so you do the best you can with the gifts and abilities God has given you one step at a time, and if it happens, it happens. You don't have to get uptight about it. You know, we we just, we get so many things like this that we, we get so concerned about And God's got it. We don't have to make life so tough on ourselves. We don't have to go around feeling guilty. We do the best we can. And when one day we get to heaven, we get rewarded for our faithfulness. Our faithfulness for being faithful to what God wants us to do. But here's the problem. You say, how do I know what God wants me to do? How do I know? Now we've got back to the original gift, right? You know him. You know him. 
you talk to him. He impresses himself upon your heart, even as he did with me this morning. You check it with the Bible, even as I did, to make sure that it is what he is saying. You look to the other brothers and sisters in Christ around you and listen to what they're saying. And you grow in him. And you get to listen to him. And you know the voice of God. And you do what he says, one step at a time. Whatever it may be, you're faithful to caring for those around you. And Chris Rice says at the end, he says, we hold on for a better time. And that better time is when we're with God in heaven. We don't see it all on earth, but we're faithful. And God works it all out in the end. So I encourage you to really grow in your, seek to grow in your relationship with God and make that the most important thing. Far more than any other achievement on earth. And let him use the gifts and abilities he's given you to put you where he'll put you and do what he'll do in your life. At the end of the day, we've got to realize that, you know, we're not the one. He is. He is. He's the only way to heaven and he's the only way to living a victorious Christian life. And this comes by faith in God's grace. Faith in God's grace is the one thing Perhaps the only thing we can really count on in this life. Martin Luther put it well when he put it this way. He said, faith is a living and daring confidence in God's grace. So sure and certain that a man could stake his life on it a thousand times. Let's stake our lives on God's faith and, our, and his grace and our faith in it. Join me in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for really just about a straightforward message of the gospel that we could talk about today. Thank you for communicating it to us through Paul and his magnificent letter to the Romans. And I pray that you'd meet us where we're at. Um, for those that do not know you, and there may be some that don't know you or here, or, or some that maybe they've been kind of going through the motions and trying to earn their way into heaven. And I pray that they would come and, and talk to us and we could talk through it. Um, that they would surrender and give their life to you. And we pray for those that already know you that we would live by faith, that it wouldn't be all about what we should do for you, but recognizing the gift that you've given us and cherishing it and holding on to it and nurturing it, enjoying our relationship with you, listening to you, taking one step at a time and enjoying life as it is before you, um, living as your servants and living as your children. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.